Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. everybody i'm pete wright and that there is andy nelson hey 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 and we spoil movies tonight on the show if we get lucky we just might break the bank 
We're back with the whole crew and Pacino, too, in Ocean's 13. This is a night people will talk about as long as it's in Las Vegas. I got the hottest new hotel on the strip. Okay, then. Where's the partner's desk going to be? Oh, no partner's desk. You're out. What are you going to do, throw me off the roof? No, I don't want to. He hurt Ruben. I know what that makes me want to do. I don't care if it gets messy. I'll drive you, get him leaving his barber. Then I'll inject him. And I'll find a spot to get rid of the body. All valid ideas. Great initiative. But. But. It's a reverse big store. Doesn't matter if we win, as long as the casino loses. Which means that we have to rig craps, blackjack, slots, and roulette. All in our favor. Jeez, could you make it any more complicated? Andy, I feel like you're bringing the hate, but I may be misreading the notes. <laughs> you use some language that I'm not real fond of. It's a little sarcastic hey, trash, in the notes. Garbage, like those notes, those words. <laughs> I may, but I want to make sure I'm not misinterpreting them. <laughs> ridiculous uh there there are things with a lot of question mark exclamation point patterns that scare me a little bit it's all context it's all context so let's let's take those when we get there okay all right all right (laughs) oceans 13 for me was a redemptive film after uh oceans 12 uh it was a refreshing uh bath in a, a a mountain spring uh, I felt renewed. Uh, I felt like the setup of bringing in Al Pacino as the the new modern gangster who has shunned all the old ways, who shook hands with Sinatra and, and didn't care about that, uh, was a, a great addition. And I, I felt like this movie went back to basics in a way that I found deeply satisfying in spite of a few uh, troublesome flaws. Uh, in, in the movie that we'll get to. Overall, this was a very positive experience. Now you. Um, this is, it, it is my least favorite of the three. <laughs> oh, good God. Good God, man. It, it really feels me. like they went back to the boredom of the first film um, and and added some extra ridiculousness to it that I really struggled with. Um, that being said, Pete, that being said, they're all kind of on par with each other. They're all kind of fair to middling films. And I don't I don't dislike it. I think it's a very fun film to watch. Absolutely. Um, but in context of the other three, um, it is my my least favorite of the bunch. Um, but yeah, they're all kind of right in that same range. So it's really hard to uh, it's hard to judge it too much negatively differently than I would have the other two, because I kind of have the same issues that I've had all along with the whole franchise. What'd you say? I had you on mute. <laughs> you. <laughs> I'm a riot. Look, uh, I I feel like that, uh, and and this was brought up in the in the Discord uh, this week. I I have come to realize that you are not meant for heist movies. No, and no, no, absolutely yeah, I not think true. That, no, no, absolutely no, I think that's true. true. I really do. Garbage. I think you have you have garbage. you have you have have I... thrown away your. Uh, credibility with heist movies. That's what's happened here. No, you decided, it's, I don't want to be known Ocean as a guy series. who can watch heist movies. <laughs> I just don't want to be that guy. Yeah. And all I'm going to carry all that baggage You believe what I'm going to go to believe. 2001. You, need, you believe what you need to believe to get yourself through the night. <laughs> I just I know have it's to hard get through the next hour to oh, say, God. Andy doesn't think it's a five-star film. I just want Andy to agree with me on this one, and it hurts my heart. 
This is not the best of them. I still think that Ocean's Eleven was the best of them, but I, this was definitely a reprieve from that piece of junk in the middle. And uh, we, we don't need to go there again. That was, whew. They had to change a piece of my, junk that my you rated three stars. That. So I don't yeah, think that it's was junk. I. No, no, no. It, I definitely. Uh, I. I regret that, especially after watching Ocean's Thirteen, and realizing how what a different film that is. I am I am deeply in need of re-ranking uh, uh, Ocean's Twelve as a result, uh, and and so I may I may just do that. I may just do that. I regret the three star that was too high. That was too high. I think I was because uh, I started I think with two and a half, and you rated it three, right? And a half. Oh, you were three and a half. Oh no, I need to knock some. I need to knock some stars. I, those stars are valuable, and I need to use them on other movies. You do what you want on your own flick chart. You whatever. I don't you, mind. I have the password. <laughs> oh, I have the password. I'll change stuff. Oh yeah. Look. So the, oh oh. Is it, is that where we're coming to? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow, the whole chart All right. is going to so get I guess You the thing that you have the most trouble with. What is the thing that you, if you were to identify the thing that sinks this movie, and and you can't just say you were bored because that I'm no no no. And well, I think you're asking a question in an unfair way because I don't think anything sinks the movie. Like I said, it's not a bad movie. It's very fun. It's very light. It's very jovial. As I said last time, it's very zesty. It it fits <laughs> in the franchise completely. Um, I do have a fun time watching it. It's just not my favorite of the bunch. Um, I, I think that it goes back to the first film and it becomes very kind of expected. It does some different stuff with how they're trying to, uh, you know, steal all this money from from uh, uh, Al Pacino's character Bank um, to because uh, you know of the way that he treated one of them. Uh, so it, it kind of is a revenge story. They've changed kind of their motivations in each of the films, which is it's fine. Not kind of, it is. It's a revenge story. It's yeah, not it's kind a, of. It's not a namby pamby like. Uh, well, no, they it's made a, a choice. It's an opinionated It's a revenge movie. story like the previous one is a family reunion, and like the previous one before that is a, is a chance to get back with your wife. Uh, those are all kind of an element of the story that is kind of their driving force, but largely their heist movies, right? I mean, that's really what it's all about. This one, yeah, I, okay. I think it just it, they took a lot of the elements that were fun in the previous two and they really amped it up for me to a point where it, it kind of crossed a line into ridiculousness. And I think that's where I run into more issues with this one. It's still fun, but I feel like they they almost were making a parody of themselves by the time they got to this one with some of the silliness that they were using. I just don't have a problem with that silliness. And there was some stuff. Okay, I have a problem with some of the silliness. I would like to catalog the silliness that I have trouble with. May I? Well, yeah, sure. There are other things I have problems with, the silliness in particular. Uh, The silliness with the Greco player detector computer. I have a problem with that. It sounds like you did too. Absolutely. It was, not only was the whole ploy silly and just designed to basically lock bank up in the basement while they pulled the heist. It, It was pretty nonsensical but also i mean and, and i lo- like julian sands but i don't know just the way that his character was written was just it, it, it almost was just absurdist it just seemed like nobody is ever going to buy into this whole thing it just it was so dumb yeah i you know for me the problem was that the they they could have just let the ai be the computer right the ai be the antagonist here like the element that they had to fool they could have kept everything the same you could have lift julian sands right out of the room and not make it 
you know, such a human driven uh, part of the film. And it, because he didn't add anything, he didn't add any level of intensity or threat or anything beyond what the AI was doing already. Uh, that was the way it was set up in the very beginning. Um, and I, I, that, that it's the it's the system that's the threat. And adding Julian Sands did not uh, elevate uh, that uh, even a little bit for me. So I completely I, agree. Yeah. The only good. thing that I, I would change is the fact that it still is like this stupid fail safe that like locks him in. It's like, seriously, that was so unbelievably bad as as far as a way out for the scriptwriters to complete the heist. Let's just lock him in so that they can finish their heist. Ugh, it was just that was eye rollingly bad. I agree with you there. The lock in was silly. I do kind of like that it was a gold Samsung phone that did it. Well, <laughs> I, that, that was kind of that fun. Branding that branding was ego, so weird. <laughs> yeah, it, that his ego like did that, but still, I, it's just yeah. such a such a stretch for me. Yeah, it was a it was a stretch for me too, and I feel like it, you're right. It was lazy. It was it was just lazy writing, and I, I feel like they could have come up with with something that would have have achieved the same purpose in a way that wasn't, as you say, eye rollingly bad. I I didn't like that. Yeah. Um, so that was silly. The other thing that's silly that I don't have a problem with, and I imagine you do, is the nose. Is the whole cougar Ellen Barkin, Linus puts on the nose, takes on the character, the Gilroy, that whole bit. I let that go. And I, I think that that is, a, that is a controversial position. It is so frustratingly awful the whole fact <laughs> that they've got this magic potion that you know uh, he wafts uh, he puts on and wafts in the air and she's just like she can't control herself so ridiculous uh, the fact that something like that would exist um, is just terrible I, I just i couldn't buy into that at all the nose i think is just a dumb element of that the fact that they want to play it I think it ends up um, just being funny because you ha you have to look at Matt Damon with this silly nose the whole time, yeah. um, which is completely ridiculous. <laughs> but yeah. it's it's really the least of my problems. It, largely, it's just this this completely unbelievable idea that somebody's come up with this love potion that makes her well, it's, fall it's pheromones, so far. Man. Yeah, in but come on, in a way that's believable. Uh, there, there's nothing believable about what they do with it here. It's so dumb to see her completely fall head over heels to a point of absurdity, and it's just it ruins that entire part of the story for me. It doesn't ruin it for me, but I get your point, and I'm that I'm not going to fight you on that because I recognize I'm in a I'm in a precarious position. Uh, myself but there is a position to take that she is that as a result of lampooning her you know by making her take on this role of of essentially subservient to smell um and and this sort of hyper sexualization as a result that makes her you know so easy uh of a of a con uh that that that's not a that's not a very kind way to write this character and i think this movie is it 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 definitely plays fast and loose with the um, uh, with with writing solid women characters. There just aren't uh, any of them anymore. Well, yeah, I mean, Julia uh, Roberts and Catherine Zeta Jones both refused to continue with the series if they didn't get significant parts in the plot. And so they didn't. And so they didn't end up in the film and they were written out really awkwardly at the beginning. And like you said, Ellen Barkin, who, man, do I just love seeing in this film and her and Al Pacino reunited after a sea of love. It was just so great seeing them on screen together. And yes. it made me really miss seeing Ellen Barkin. 
because I always enjoyed her. Like there was that period in the late 80s, early 90s that she was in a number of films that I was really enjoying. And I just I wish that she was um, offered more parts because I always liked her. And you're yeah. right. It's such a poorly uh, written female character. And this is how they use her. She could have been really like the brains behind this operation. And it could have created a really interesting challenge for the guys. And instead, it's like, you know, she's just dumped. And it's just so frustrating. Yeah, I totally agree. And and that is the thing I think that's most heartbreaking about her character is that it was a character with promise that I, I feel like you, as you say, she could have been the brains. You could have done something really smart with her at the end and still find a way to take advantage of of her as, you know, or or use her in some way to get those jewels, whatever the case. You, you could have done it. Uh, and and instead they wrote it as this, they, they wrote it slapstick. And, and I, I just, uh, I wasn't crazy about that. Well, and that is largely my issue with most of the other elements of the film. And I'm guessing that those were kind of it as far as the silly points for you. Those were it for the silly yeah. points, yeah. But I, And I feel like largely everything else that I have problems with is because it kind of turns the comedy, which I thought had been really strong in the previous films, to more of this slapstick style. You know, I think it's kind of funny that the Malloys get themselves caught up in this Mexican revolt, but it also starts feeling a little slapsticky. The the tunnel when they're digging this this tunnel under Vegas that starts feeling really slapsticky. Me, the whole concept is just kind of so so Scooby Doo. It just it seems so silly that that's actually what they're doing. I I know I'm saying that after they pull this you know random electronic device into the first film to shut down Vegas, but still at least I felt that was more believable. Yeah, and and let me lest we forget they actually lifted of uh. In the Zilla, same, right. you know, 12. So. No, right. I mean, they're they're doing plenty of ridiculous things in the films. But for some reason, the tunnel thing just seems so silly. And the fact that they had to like the first one breaks and they get a whole second one. It just it got so, yeah, so corny. Um, I actually really like all of the stuff involved in the heist. Um, and I think that's largely uh, what I end up enjoying most about all of these films is I think they they make a lot of the heist stuff really fun. Except when it comes to the Ellen Barkin material, except when it comes to Al Pacino in the basement. Um, I love all of the stuff of them, you know, changing the dice out. You know, I love Bernie Mac and his secret little, uh, you know, domino game that he's got going on. Um, just, I mean, there are a lot of fun things that they're doing throughout. And uh, so I, I do enjoy quite a bit. It's just, I feel like it devolves into this strange comedy that they just you know, maybe I should say that they've been moving toward as the series has progressed. And that's where we disagree. I don't feel like this was that this is the end of a of a particular journey toward chaos. I feel like it's a bounce back from Nutdom in 12. But there are some elements that are troublesome. I'd like your take on David Paymer as the, uh, uh, you know, he's he is the representative of the five diamonds. Uh, he's He was there to rate the hotel and give bank yet another of these prestigious awards for for you know top quality hotels uh and he felt like he was a shoe in they send paymer in and the crew takes advantage of paymer and and inflicts upon him uh hotel horrors uh that that i would should say have been in my mind since like I, i've i've never carried a black light into a hotel room but i think about it <laughs> 
needless to say, uh, you know, it's probably a good place to plug your other podcast that you have. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. It's tough. <laughs> about about all these horrible things that you have uh-huh. uh, uh, fears of, because absolutely, uh, it is horrifying. I love David Paymer. I actually think he's really funny in this role. I think he is the perfect schlub to to play a character like this in in this film. Um it doesn't it it makes me like these guys less because of what they do to him. I mean, they put him through the ringer in some of the most horrible ways that I just I feel so bad for the guy. Yes, it's stuff he'll recover from, but really, I mean, it's just it's just terrible that he has to go through it and only by you know, the grace of the, the, you know, the movie gods, does he have a chance of redemption in that last shot, which is, you know, uh, you know, it's just, it's movie silliness, but I don't think it is. I think it was planned. I think it was absolutely planned. I think that they had, they had somehow planned that. I don't buy that at all. I totally think you're wrong. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well see, again, he, I don't think that's the thing. I don't think these guys are bad guys. I think that's the whole point. They I, I believe they go into this knowing they're going to take advantage of somebody and feeling like they need to, that he needs to get paid. So I give him that grace. Well, and honestly, I mean, it's because it's Brad Pitt who's doing it first. I mean, sure, I, I guess I buy into it. But that's just the that's going back to what I said last time. These movies have created this this um, this place for these stories where i don't trust anything in these films i find everything suspect that happens um because it's like you know they've made it where everything kind of is like nothing is real it's all part of the scam and it just gets to a place where like by the time they're introducing the fbi guy i'm like well of course he's not an fbi guy you know they've they've taken that away from me like there's no fun in any of those surprises anymore you know, I remember back, I don't remember what the movie was, but it was at some point you had locked your inner child in a closet under the stairs. I think that's, I think he's there now. I think you've, your the, inner child is Star locked Wars. Up. It was the it was new Star, Star Wars, Wars uh, before afraid. Uh, Force Awakens came out. <laughs> and then the trailer broke him free. It did. It broke him free. Oh, I'm, I'm sad that these movies have put him back there. No, my and my Ocean's child is, is firmly locked away and always really locked away. <laughs> Haven't fed him in many moons. Uh, okay, well, I I feel like Paul uh, Pamer was a was a fun character. I really enjoyed him in this movie. I love what they put him through, and I love that he gets paid in the end. That that feels like a a satisfying arc to me. And I I let go of the other uh, the other movie god stuff. It it feels good. Let's go back to the Malloys though, shall we? And sending the one of the Malloys to Mexico. Uh, does that work for you? The whole Zapata uh, labor uprising bit. It's funny. I mean, I do think it's pretty funny that that uh, it goes to that length and they're doing this just to get these dice made. I mean, it 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 stretches the limits of of believability like it like the first one did a pretty good job keeping mostly feeling pretty pretty possible um but as the series has progressed it's gotten to a point where i just nothing seems feasible and i mean the 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 chance that they go through for all these things i mean it's it's like a 0.00001% chance that all of these pieces that they're putting into place are actually going to fall um right for them i i just i find it such a stretch but it is fun i i do enjoy seeing uh casey affleck joining up with this uh mexican union revolt i think it's actually quite funny um and it's nice for a brief time at, at least seeing them kind of split up um but again it does get a little a little silly but it is it is one of my more um uh uh favorite parts of the film 
Well, I, I actually like it on, on revisiting more. Uh, going into it, I was I found myself thinking, I think I'm going to be frustrated by this because, you know, I was so frustrated by splitting up the team in Oceans 12. And in this case, uh, it, it is much, it's for a much shorter time than, um, you know, than I, I had remembered. And it ends up being a really funny element for me. And I, you know, I love when they get back together and they're the, you know, they're, they're, their security bit with, with Pamer is fantastic uh, when they're trying to tell him that he's gone nose deaf is <laughs> 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 one of the funniest scenes in the movie uh and uh, so i you know i just i, I really enjoy their work together uh, again in this film they're they're fantastic well well and to the point of the employees as far as like the mexican revolutionaries and the revolt um i i think that that's another stretch the fact that the brother of the guy that that affleck is working with conveniently also works at the hotel and man, is it me or is it just super easy for anyone, including half of our team here, to get jobs working for this casino? And man, like half of his other employees seem perfectly willing to stab him in the back. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, boy, boy, this bank guy must be hated largely and have a really poor uh, hiring team because uh, it's just... <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I never actually felt like they were... Uh, I, well, I know... So we know how... Um, we know how the the uh, dominoes got in there, and and he's he's there representing the dominoes, um, Bernie Mac, Frank. Yeah. Frank. Frank's there representing, so that's how he got in. Uh, the other guys, like the the Malloys, I always sort of imagined that they got in. Um, they just ended up getting uniforms that they didn't actually work there, that they were just pretending. Well, that's that's entirely possible. But I, I feel like there were some other people who, um, like who else did I think had like jobs? Roman, well, we see, Roman we see, is in there. He works for the Shuffle Company. He has a uniform for the Shuffle Company. And Livingston is the guy who's fixing the, the card dispensers. Right, right, with Roman. Yeah. I didn't have a, as much of a problem with that. That's a minor issue. I just, it's something that I rolled my eyes out a little bit as I was watching. It was like, God, anybody can get a job with bank. Yeah. (laughs) For for a guy who's, who's pushing so hard at getting a five star diamond (laughs) or five diamond thing or whatever it is. Maybe you should turn that fancy computer on his HR problems. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and, and back to Livingston and his little card thing that he's futzing with all the time. Is it just me or is he totally turning into the dad from Gremlins and making just like, like machinery that never works. Yes. It's like they, they take him down a really strange road where all of a sudden I'm like, this is the guy that they have on their team. He can't like do anything. And he's, he's trying to make this thing and it's just spitting cards out. And I'm like, Oh boy. Well, that was the thing that he was having trouble. What are the other things that he, he made that didn't go wrong or right? Well, that was it. Just that one. Yeah. Just that one. But, it's right? like, but, but that's the thing is like, you know, he was always really good at coming up with this stuff. And then in this film, and this is like talk, what we talked about with Linus last time, where they started him down this strange track, which they continue in this film. All of a sudden, Livingston, it's like, did he say as an actor, I want to do something. Give me something else because I feel like I'm just doing the same thing. And so this is kind of what they did yeah. with him. I don't know. I really struggled with that. I Although I really like the bit where he's um, stepping on the tack. Like that part I thought was quite funny. Yes, it was great. And, you know, so here's my problem with Livingston. And I'm asking those questions just as a a point of just to be contrarian at this point. I don't even know. But I agree with you. And the challenge that I have is once again, you could take uh, Eddie Izzard out of this movie 
and our original guys could do the job like they he is a a plot device to explain the to explain the heist in the beginning of the movie in the first third of the movie and and then we don't really need him we don't we could find another way to get around that using one of the other characters uh, without Eddie is why is Eddie Izzard in this movie? Why do we need Roman Nagel? Well, and that's I think going to you know my theory last time is that you know Ocean's Twelve they added uh, uh, Julia Roberts to the team. Thirteen, okay, so they're adding Terry, and I guess Roman is helping them because, and I think it's largely because they were trying to say, okay, well we've got to have a couple other people around, and I think that's yeah. largely why Roman's here. Um, that but feels like, sloppy to me. It well, and like you said last time, it, you you never really considered that as an element and i think this is why because if it was their intention they're not doing a very good job of it yes yeah i agree i agree and and i like eddie Izzard. i think he's a funny character i think oh, he's, yeah, absolutely. he's he's great to watch but again having eddie Izzard in here and using him this way using roman the character this way deflates um uh, you know uh Livingston's role and and that I I agree with you I agree with you we don't need him to be so slapstick we don't actually need him to be to have that kind of trouble we need him to be the damned expert we need him to be the technologist who can get stuff done and um and I feel like they deflated him there yep all right what do you think of uh Cheadle's accent uh it's still it's still weak but you know it's grown on me I guess it's one of those accents where <laughs> I've heard it long enough where I'm like you know what I kind of like Cheadle with this terrible accent I, I haven't done it yet, but I, I need to go back and watch, um, you know, his when he's first uh, sprung in Ocean's Eleven to one of the drill scenes here, because I think his accent has changed. I think it's softened. <laughs> you do? I really do. I think they gave up a little bit. That's funny. You want to talk about getting it made? Yeah, I don't have a lot to say about this one other than it sounds like originally when they started working on it and they had all the gears moving the whole plan was to shoot most of this film at the Wynn Las Vegas Casino. Um, and I guess I guess things kind of shifted away from that for one reason or the other. And then I think uh, Clooney wanted to shoot it at um, his uh, upcoming Las Ramblas resort in Vegas, but it wasn't ready. And so then, there, then Warner Brothers decided we're going to shoot it in a fake casino on our stage. And that was pretty much the plan. Although they did end up going to film in Vegas at the Bellagio, um, I think early in the production and then late in the production. And then they also filmed a little bit at the Palazzo. So, so they did do some actual Vegas filming, but because it's this fictional casino that bank has, um, they, they largely just decided they were going to build their own. That hurt the film for me. I don't know. Maybe I was just a little heartsick, but it just felt it. It felt fake. It felt like a Vegas that was not grounded in Vegas, because it was this crazy, you know, bananas hotel. Well, and that was part of it. It's like I really like the design of it. <laughs> like when I, we would see those those shots of the city with that crazy like design of the hotel sticking up. I was like, you know, it actually looks really cool. But I could never buy it as a real place because it always like everything seems like too crooked. And I don't know, there's yeah. not enough space to actually build anything inside. And, you know, I always struggled with the realities of it as cool as it looked. It's straight off a Coruscant. <laughs> That's where it comes from. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> so silly. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, shall, shall we do the deep scene dive, Andy? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Let's do the deep scene dive. It's uh, we're talking about the grand opening. This is a sequence right in the middle of the film. Uh, that starts about an hour, 1330, title card, The Grand Opening. 
here we have the crew executes the mechanics of the heist. All of the things they've been putting into place leading up to uh, the heist itself. They're putting in place in the casino. They're they're switching out all the shuffling decks with uh, Livingston's work, and and uh, we see Eddie Izzard in there uh, uh, helping to load and replace shuffling decks. We see them putting all the dice that they have uh, matched out uh, or they've swapped out with these new robotic, uh, you know, trick dice. Uh, putting those in place at all the tables. Um, and uh, as they get everybody in place, we have a nice conversation where um, Willie Bank and Danny Ocean uh, are negotiating the return of the whales. Ocean had taken all of the whales uh, to uh, out of the bank casino during the soft uh, launch, and now he's negotiating what's it going to take to bring these whales back so they gamble at the bank casino. And uh, that's what this sequence sets up. Uh, what do you like about this sequence? It's, it is, uh, I think it's just kind of Soderbergh at his best. It's a fun way to kind of kick this sequence off. Um, you get some really interesting style that Soderbergh chooses with the split screens. Sometimes it's split screens, but the same shot is playing on multiple frames within the split screens. Um, it, it just feels kind of alive and fresh and, uh invigorating you know it's kind of a fun way to kind of kick this part of the story off when we really get into our heist i i absolutely and and this is this is again it's a sequence these little montage sequences are are you know best in class Soderbergh, right? This is this is what he does. This is why I'm able to forgive, you know, the th- the silliness that in other movies, in lesser movies, I think I would I would be much harsher on. Uh, because the presentation is so classy. Uh, it is so technically smart. It is so uh, it's so crafty and well crafted. The colors are amazing. The the reds are so red and the blues are so blue and all of the contrasts are are so sharp uh, and there's so much fantastic movement and kineticism. It's it feels like a a, a, a real sort of s- spot of energy, an island of energy right in the middle of the in the middle of the film. And we get this conversation that is uh, it's not one of the best, one of the wittiest bits of dialogue in here. Uh, but it is uh, it, it's a fun conversation seeing the standoff between Clooney and Pacino. And uh, I like that. I like the reverse angle. I like the sort of silhouette with this giant sumo match going on in the background, again, highlighting all the deep reds and golds. Uh, and uh, we get them talking to one another about, you know, what's your percentage take? If I bring these whales back, what do I get? And I, I really like that uh, that bit. Yeah, it, it works. I think in context of it all being just another part of the ploy, um, you know, I, I think they play it off well enough. And actually, Pacino, we haven't really um, said much about him, but I mean, he's an actor who can be really over the top sometimes. And generally, even when he is over the top, I still really like him because he's just, you know, really kind of mesmerizing as the way that he um, performs on screen. Um, But here, even as kind of a big character, I actually felt like um, he still relatively kind of uh, controlled it enough where I, I fully just bought him as this character. I was really impressed with Pacino throughout uh, the entire film. He was very subdued. I agree with you. There were pieces where you expect the 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 Pacino shriek, you know, you expect him to go come completely off kilter and he never really does. He does. He does, the, the weirdest he gets, I think, is on TV. Right. <laughs> it's when we're we're back in in uh, uh, Pamer's room and 
uh, we're looking at the in-house channel on television and you see <laughs> Pacino saying, maybe you'll get lucky and break the bank right. with his fingers <laughs> crossed. He's very strange there. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, it, it totally works. So Yeah, even um, when he's get, getting anyway. like really um, uh, fired up when he's locked in the basement in the in the uh, thing. Yeah. Like it still doesn't feel like the over the top crazy Pacino that you see like when he's oh. really exploding in The Godfather or something. It, it, it really controlled. I really, I really enjoyed him. What'd you think of Clooney? Did he, um, uh, you know, here and in the movie? Uh, largely, I still like him. I mean, he's a very likable actor and I've always liked him. I do feel like it still feels written. Like largely when, when they're all talking with each other, it feels written. I think weirdly, I didn't feel it as much with this film of the three films. Like this film felt less of that scripted dialogue sort of stuff. Um, and so I ended up kind of, I, I think most of the time, I think I, you know, when we get to like the airport scene at the end, I still felt like it was a little bit written, but for the most part, I actually felt like they did a pretty good job with kind of um, cleaning that up a little bit. Um, unfortunately, they just went down kind of an absurdist road, but I think as far as an actor who can carry these sorts of films off, um, I think he's great. It's funny talking about Bruce Willis last week and how he was originally Danny Ocean, it does make me kind of picture him leading the charge for this trilogy. And I really struggle with him as somebody who could successfully do it. I think, I think Clooney is really a great uh, choice for something like this. I I totally agree. I, I think he's actually great. And all the parts that you say are written uh, because I feel like they're so natural those words have lost all meaning to me. <laughs> I really love those bits. The Oprah bits, Ugh, the, the uh, you geez. know, the, oh God, I just love it. I love it so I, much. So much. I'm glad you do. How about Bernie? I'm glad you do. Bernie. Yeah. Tell me about Bernie. great. Um, this was sadly one of his last roles. Um, he died at the age of 50, August 9th, 2008. Um, you know, a little bit after this film uh, came out. And, uh, you know, he was just, he was great in the franchise uh, just one of those faces that I always enjoyed, um, particularly in this one. He was given, it felt like a little bit more meat. I know the last film, he was uh, on a different project, so largely was locked up. Um, so maybe it's just nice having him back because he's a, he's always a great addition. Totally agree. As is Elliot Gould. Uh, I enjoyed Elliot Gould, even though we have Gould here uh, distracted by heart issues for a lot of the film. Uh, in this sequence, we get him uh, back in the saddle a little, a little bit. It made me wonder if uh, I couldn't find anything saying it, but it did make me wonder if he had his own project that he was working on that left him in bed for the duration of or for the uh, big chunk of this project. Right. I was wondering that, too. Uh, it, it felt like knowing what we know about how they schedule these things, that he was uh, sidelined yeah. a little bit. Uh, uh, anyhow, uh, we get the Malloys in here. We get uh, uh, Livingston. We get uh, uh, the amazing Yen, and and of course uh, Ellen Barkin. Uh, anybody else stand out that you want to talk about that we haven't already? No, mentioned? I think that's that's the team. I think you know they they all effectively return, and I think they all do great work uh, in, as these characters. Um, I just I think largely the thing that impressed me the most in this particular film was just seeing Pacino um, feel like Pacino, but still somebody totally different. Uh, Peter Andrews. Ah, yes. Uh, Sod Soderbergh is, is back behind the camera. Now, this this is his last feature shot on film. 
shot uh, at, at least what I read it shot entirely on film. I don't know if that is just that means that you know he shot something else with some film. I I don't know, but um, he's not very good at keeping promises that include last in them. He isn't. That is absolutely true. But I mean, we do know Soderbergh is very much a fan of kind of the digital world and everything. So I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if he's just given up film entirely and is just focusing on on all the digital tools now. Um, but I will say, I love the way he plays with colors here, uh, natural lighting sometimes, playing with silhouettes at times, the way that some of the shots that he does are kind of oneers, where the whole thing is just a single shot. I mean, he does a lot of playing, I, not so much in this, but in this, I do really love how he fluidly creates the fun of this grand opening. Yeah, totally, totally. And and so much of that credit then goes to uh, his work with Stephen Marioni again. Uh, I, I just you know you already mentioned the use of split screen, but it, it it's such a brilliant thing because in this sequence we get them both using or we get them using split screen as you say different crops of the same shot, which is super funky, but also using it to show us different angles of the same shot and different angles uh, of different locations at the same time. So using split screen in all of its different compositions to to help tell the story and and move this montage forward i think it it just adds to that sort of um, that that momentum uh and and keeps us super engaged i i think it's fantastic and david holmes is back for number three and he's so good honestly it's like the pairing of soderbergh Marioni, and holmes um in this trilogy again i don't always like these films i i it's not my favorite trilogy but I think what all of these guys are doing with this franchise is always something special. It gives it an identity, right? When Absolutely. you think of these movies, like the color and the image and the movement and the sound, and it's so good. And we should say not just the the score, uh, but the soundtrack. I mean, you know, using this town, Sinatra's This Town at the end of this film is uh, inspired. Oh, it's just it's a perfect song to throw in at the end i was so excited to hear that and i know that um references to sinatra i mean uh, he had really been uh, soderbergh had really been trying to avoid a lot of that through this franchise there have been times when um you know there there was like a i can't remember in the first film where they were i think it was outside of the club where um, where Pitt was teaching the kids to play gambling or to play poker. Um, and there was a big painting, like a mural on the wall of, of Sinatra. And he very deliberately chose to not shoot that in the frame. Mm -hmm. And that was something very consistent that he was always avoiding, um, which is interesting because this film, it really feels like, hey, you know, this is our last chance. Maybe we should mention the fact that, you know, Sinatra, you know, did this film called Ocean's Eleven, and this is you know all a remake and spinoffs of that original story. <laughs> so it's kind of funny that that he yeah. finally kind of cave, I don't know if he caved in or just is like you know let's do it. Yeah, I I think it was great. It's a great way to wrap up the trilogy. It's it got a lot of heart. Yeah, this was an original script. It was not shoehorned in, and I think that's something that you can feel. I don't know anything about the script other than Brian Kopelman and David Levian uh, wrote it, uh, but I couldn't find any uh, any tidbits about um, about them working on it or when they came to start digging in or anything. But yeah, as far as I can tell, it's original script for for the uh, for the trilogy. Thank goodness. Yeah. Again. <laughs> Daggers. Daggers. <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, all right. 
Yeah, Soderbergh's gotten some. Uh, we've already been uh, heaping praise upon him, but he's gotten some praise from outside sources too. New York Times had some nice things to say. Yeah, Manola Dargis, uh, in her review of the film, said, uh, playing inside the box and out, Soderbergh has learned to go against the grain while also going with the flow. In Ocean's 13, he proves that in spades by using color like Kandinsky and hanging a funny mustache on Mr. Clooney's luscious mug, having become a genius of the system he so often resists. You know, he read that and retired once. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> But I think, I mean, this goes to what we keep saying about Soderbergh. Uh, you know, you like this franchise more than I do, um, but I think largely we are both fans of Soderbergh and what he's doing here. And I think that is what uh, makes him a director worth watching. Even when it's something that's not one of my favorite films, I always find him a really interesting filmmaker. And I love that he's trying new things. We got some other casts that we haven't talked about uh, specifically. There's, I do want to bring up Andy Garcia back as Terry Benedict, and he's. I love Andy Garcia. He was a highlight of the first movie. I had trouble with him in the second movie. Uh, I felt like it was confused. It does he work for you here? I. I, I think it's a stretch that uh, the logic to kind of connect him into this, but. That is actually one of the elements that I do buy, like in context of the way that these stories have been flowing. I end up buying that he would be fine going along with this. This this, again, works for me that it, it bounced back. I, I didn't like it in the last movie, but it works for me here. Uh, and uh, it, it, it does tie into an element of silliness that I feel like I have to bring up because I forgot it was it was a bit that I that was ultimately forgettable, and that's most telling. Vincent Cassell is back as Francois Toulour in a wildly underwritten uh, twist at the end that is ultimately, to my eye, pointless. It's it's pointless and it's frustrating because you do get a hint at the end of Ocean's Twelve that uh, Toulour, the Night Fox, is go is kind of following these guys and is going to be involved in Thirteen somehow. Unfortunately, it does feel very anemic the way he ends up getting written in. And that is another frustration I have with the film is yeah. I felt like they could have done something really interesting with that and, and made him foil their plan a little bit. You know, give us a nice end to the second act where it feels like, oh, there's no way they're going to be able to pull this off only yeah. to see them kind of find a way out of it. And you just don't get that. It's just all smooth sailing. That's why it's frustrating. It's like it's all smooth sailing. It's sloppy and it's inefficient and it's it it is convoluted for the sake of being convoluted. Like I just I just don't get why they have to just throw in half parts in in a movie that otherwise is so to me strong. Um, so that's it. What what else do we have? You you find some other uh, trivia you want to share? Just a few little you gotta, bits. You talk about the nose, man. Well, we've talked about Terry Gilliam on the show before, and of course he directed Matt Damon in The Brothers Grimm a few years before this. And I guess that the the reason the whole fake nose bit came to be is because Terry Gilliam wanted Matt Damon uh, to wear a fake nose in that film, but the studio vetoed it. And so they threw that in as an in-joke here uh, to that whole situation. So kind of funny. Yeah, kind of funny. Yeah. The other well, funny uh, bit. And, and Basher, yeah, Basher shows up as uh, Fender Rhodes, fictional stuntman Fender Rhodes. Yeah, one, which of course the name is is uh, uh, guitar related. Yeah. But, um, but his persona is really kind of uh, 
in either an homage or parody, depending on how you view it, of Evil Knievel. And what's really funny is that Bob Einstein, who is uh, who plays Linus's dad and playing that fake FBI agent, uh, he was actually um, uh, played. Do you remember the the show or the movie Super Dave? Oh, totally. He totally. was Super Dave, which I did yeah. not remember at all until I saw this little note. So totally cracked <laughs> me up that uh, there's that little bit in here as well. You know, and if you're not watching Curb Your Enthusiasm this season, he's I, I don't know. I don't I don't know what's up as he's aged. He's gotten just a lot louder. <laughs> I, I don't know what's going on with him. His his part. Maybe it's just working with Larry David. But if you're not watching Curb Your Enthusiasm and you want to see just a ridiculously dysfunctional relationship between older men, uh, Bob Einstein in that show is absolutely hysterical. Do you know he was uh older brother of Albert Brooks? Like a real older brother? Yeah. Oh, because Albert's real name is Einstein, isn't it? Yeah. I had forgotten. <laughs> that awesome. I had no idea. Uh it's pretty good. Very interesting. Pretty very good. Interesting. Yeah. How did it do an award season, Andrew? Well, it wasn't really an award film, uh, much like its predecessor. Um, this film did get Why one do you, win. You though. don't have to say it like you're like stifling a laugh. You don't have to say it like that. Like I'm chuckling a little bit be, on the inside. Would you stop? Would you stop? <laughs> give it a chance, man? Uh, unfortunately, sadly, unfortunately, yes, there you go. It only had one win, but it did get five other nominations. Uh, the win that it did get was at everybody's favorite, the People's Choice Awards. Where uh, it won for favorite on-screen matchup with Pitt. And I can't Clooney. believe you just said that the People's Choice Awards was everybody's favorite. I, did you intend to do that? I did. Right. It was air that's so good. Did you, did you hear those? that? Was yeah. Effortless. God. <laughs> um, Sorry. The <laughs> the losses um, at the BET Awards. Don Cheadle was nominated for Best Actor um, for this and Talk to Me, both of which he did. Uh, that year, but he lost to Denzel Washington for The Great Debaters and American Gangster. Um, the uh, Costume Design Guild Awards nominated uh, this film's uh, lovely costume designer, Louise Frogley, for her work uh, in the Excellence in Contemporary Film category, but she lost uh, to the film Blades of Glory, uh, which I guess oh, I'd say is contemporary. Yeah. It's, it's very garish with its, with its costumes. Yeah, and then uh, you know, just under the People's Choice Awards, Pete, it's Teen Choice Awards. <laughs> um, it was nominated for Choice Movie Comedy, but lost to Knocked Up. It was nominated for Choice Movie Chemistry, but lost to The Pursuit of Happiness. And it was nominated for Choice Movie Villain, but lost to Bill Nye in Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. Hmm. I want to know which well, teens are going yeah. out and watching Knocked Up and The Pursuit yes. of Happiness. I'd very much like to know that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know those teens. I don't either. Oh, well. How to do in the box office. Soderbergh's final film in his trilogy was back to the $85 million for its budget, perhaps because of the cooler reception of the previous entry. When adjusted for today's dollars, it's actually the cheapest entry, coming in at $98.6 million. The franchise shifted to a summer release, opening June 8, 2007, opposite Hostel Part 2 and Surf's Up, plus the limited release of a film we've talked about on the show before, La Vie en Rose. The film easily took the number one slot for opening weekend and went on to make $117.1 million domestically and $194.6 million internationally, giving it an adjusted gross of $361.6 million. 
film landed with an adjusted profit per finished minute of 2.3 million, making it the least profitable of the bunch, but still a better return on the investment since it cost less than number two. Well, I'm shedding a, a single tear, but at least it was profitable. <laughs> hey, if nothing else, it's giving them a chance to make another one. There you go. There you go. Andy, I think it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel to see our list, or you can just swipe over in your show notes, tap on flickchart. It'll take you right to this movie, which you can add to your own collection and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, Ocean's 13 or Star Trek Beyond? Star Trek for me. Star Trek. Ocean's 13 or The Host? Ocean's 13. No, The Host. <laughs> I couldn't say it with a straight face. I'm saying Ocean's 13. You are? Yeah. I have oh. so many issues with The Host. I know you do. See, I really, really like both of these movies. Ugh. Can I do rock, paper, scissors to myself? <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it for you. You pick The Host. Okay. I'll do it. One. Okay, I'll be The Host. All right, here oh, we go. There you go. One, One two, two, three. three. Paper. Rock. Okay. Win. All right. Good. That's that's fine. Ocean's 13 or Giant? Ocean's 13. God, are we there now? Wow. Ocean's 13 or Star Trek? Insurrection. I will say Star Trek. Uh. Oh, wait. Insurrection? No, 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 no. I'm Ocean's 13. I'll say Ocean's. Yeah. As much as I like the skin, the face, and all that fun stuff. I love those yeah. aliens in that film. Yeah. Ocean's 13 or Clute? I will say Clute for sure. I'll say Clute, too. Ocean's 13 or Spies. Oh, little Fritz Lang. Ocean's 13. I'm going to say Spies. Here we go. One, two, three. three. Scissors. <laughs> Sorry. I win some, I lose some. <laughs> Ocean's 13 or Detour. <laughs> little film noir. I'm going to say Detour. Detour. Ocean's 13 or The Untouchables. Oh, we've been talking quite a bit about Brian De Palma over on... Our Patreon with yeah. our Patreons on Discord. I want to say I would watch Ocean's Thirteen first. I like the Untouchables, but I had more problems with it this time. And I feel like they're gonna still be there. I'm gonna say Ocean's Thirteen. I'm surprising right. myself with that one. Wow. Well there it is. Ocean's Thirteen landed at two ninety on our chart out of three hundred sixty. Something is wrong with that, I think. <laughs> because the movies that it paired for us here uh were very difficult. <laughs> this movie should be higher and i think doesn't that mean like where is oceans 12 on our list do you remember oceans 11 came in at 75 oceans 12 226 oceans 13 290 yeah see so, that's a problem so you're that disappointed a, with one of those rankings and i'm disappointed with one of those rankings everything's <laughs> they fine should be reversed <laughs> i agree we both let's lose. reverse 11 and 12 and then <laughs> everything is perfect <laughs> andy oh God, I regret this series more than any other we've done. <laughs> oh, I love On it. This... It's so fun getting so divisive it... with you. Oh, my God. Okay, so look, here's the deal. <laughs> On mine, 11 came in at 32. Wow. Uh, 12 came in at 441, and 13 came in at 102. According to the algorithm for me, this should be a four-and-a-half-star movie. Uh, it's not, but... It's where the, the the AI says it should be. How did it go for you? Well, uh, what are you giving it? Or are you not uh, telling I, me yet? <laughs> I, I'm not telling you yet. I want to hear what you're, you're ranking. 
I uh, mine came in at twelve twenty three out of four thousand. I hit that magic four thousand finally. Oh yeah, uh, which which puts it at sixty nine percent. So uh, I think Ocean's twelve was at a thousand. Ocean's thir- or Ocean's eleven was at like one thousand thirty five, and Ocean's thirteen is at twelve twenty three. So they're all in a pretty safe spot, close to each other. Well, I'm a solid four star on this one. I'm I I feel like there and and it was four and a half. It's a solid four now. Um, it it's falling because of I, I just some of the silliness, the silliness with the computer, the silliness with that. So I just the silliness weighted it down for me this time. Well, I'm at a three star and a like. So okay, that actually seems much more positive than I expected. Like I said, just because it's my least favorite of the trilogy doesn't mean I think it's a bad film. It's still fun and still light. I mean, I still enjoy this series. I just have issues with it. (laughs) But I mean, they're all in the top half of my flick chart. So I think that you're still being too hard on me for my problems. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Ocean 13. Yeah, it's a five star. I had a lot of quibbles. (laughs) All right. All right. There you have it. Where, Where are we going from from here? Well, as we've alluded to, um, the series does continue now. Uh, it's been popular enough, and now we've got a, a new director. We've got a new cast. Uh, it's all female, and it's going to be the female gang, Ocean's 8, directed by Gary Ross, that just came out a few, uh, well, last week, actually. So, yeah, last week. Uh, well, as we're recording this, it was last week. Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Yeah. It'll be a fun one to uh, to check out and see a, kind of a new direction for the series. And you've, you've seen it now, right? Yeah. I have seen it. You have seen it. I think we've both seen it now. I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about this movie uh, next week. Old Gary Ross, he totally screws up the logos. I didn't, I didn't buy it until until I watched these the logo sequences side by side. First failings in the open five seconds. I can't believe he messed messed with the logos. I wasn't going to say that until next week, but you've, you've, it's a spoiler alert. It is logos a spoiler alert. The violated. logos that Soderbergh does so brilliantly through the franchise get completely ruined what does that say about the film folks you'll have to tune in to see (laughs) (laughs) well if you want to hear more of us but you can't wait until next week's show you can uh, head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel you can get access to our exclusive members only weekend show there the saturday matinee we talk about uh, all sorts of things movie news we pick trailers we have our head-to-head weekly challenge where we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week The options for this particular film are going to be interesting to see. So uh, so, (laughs) lots of goodies uh, over there also on Patreon. So check it out. Patreon.com slash The Next Reel. You can learn more about us at TheNextReel.com. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart, who runs our Instagram, Ben Lott, running everything over on Twitter, and of course, thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song, Ragtime Instrumental, as the theme to the show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Um, I, I went with one star, and I I found uh, the canonical greatness in Smokey the Wonder Lizard, who I think 
you, you will find some affinity with. <laughs> I just want to There's say, some... Smokey the Wonder Lizard, you already have my heart for picking <laughs> that name. <laughs> says overly dumb. Smokey the Smokey, Wonder Smokey. Lizard. Smokey says, "What a new pet." I was, I was trying to do this all straight face. I was trying to do it all straight face and make the, the, Wonder Lizard. the funny. It was supposed to be how straight we were able to keep it, and that's all gone. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Smokey the Wonder Lizard says. Uh, <laughs> Okay. Overly done, flashy, and no substance, says Smokey the Wonder Lizard. (laughs) (laughs) Famous actors and some famous old actors get together to go to Las Vegas. Fun for them. Awful film for us. Let's see. Weak storyline, bad dialogue, Vegas, Vegas, and let's see. Oh, yeah. More Vegas. Yuck. And disconnected, disjointed, and lacks cohesion. Awful. Simply awful. Time to retire, Ocean. Ouch. <laughs> Smoky. <laughs> oh, well, I've, I have one star that's not as good as Smokey's. <laughs> because it's not <laughs> written by Smokey. The Wonder Lizard. Oh, mine is by Robert Myers, who says, What a stinker! Actually, I should say, there's about ten exclamation points. It's like, What a stinker! It started out slow and then fizzled out altogether. It was a real bore. Don't recommend Ocean 13 till it hits the bargain bin at Walmart. Then I would have to think about it. So, there you go. <laughs> I just like you howling. That was good. <laughs> if you're, if, What's, if wait, you're interested... I have to go back because somebody actually uh, commented on this, having found it helpful. They said, nice review. Any chance you are from Pittsburgh? <laughs> That's good. Finding love in Amazon comments. Ah, thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.